We'll now have a time of scripture reading. Scripture reading today will be taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Sister Lina will be reading for us the passage today. You can take this moment to grab your Bibles or you can follow the passage on the screen. Thank you. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are exampled, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little ease leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old ease, so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers, or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer or drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Uh, Pastor Nicholas will now speak to us God's word. Good morning, friends. Uh, please keep your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Yeah, pray for us as we look at his word. Let's pray. Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept your word. Silence in us any voice but your own, that hearing we may also obey your will. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So on Gospel Coalition, uh, I read about an article. So this pastor shared about how he, he, had, he faced a very difficult situation. Uh, they had a university student called Jack uh, who led a small group and the small group, he also taught the Bible. But he had, a serious, he had serious problems with lust, and he was getting drunk. When the church leaders finally found out what happened, as part of the discipline, they asked, asked him to list out uh, names of people that, that he had slept with in the past, past year. And he gave the names of six women. And one of those women was also in his small group. She wasn't a Christian, she was there to find out more about Jesus, but he slept with her. 
So what was the church to do? Should they uh, tolerate the sin so that he can continue leading a small group? Or should they discipline him? Now that's what we are thinking about today. Should we tolerate sin in church at the risk of making, making people angry, uh, at risk of losing people that we need to serve? Now the Corinthians, they face a similar problem. As we, we saw just now, they tolerated the sinner. So in our passage today, Paul wrote to them, chapter 5, and we see what this means for them and what this means for us. So Paul tells them three things. First, mourn the sinner, mourn the sin and discipline the sinner. Because, verse 6 to 8, because Christ has made you holy. And verse 9 to 13, therefore, judge the immoral within the church. First, mourn the sin and discipline the sinner. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to the people of Corinth, the Christians in Corinth. And so far in the letter, Paul has been correcting them about their pride in following different leaders and, and dividing the church. So in chapter 5, uh, here, there's a new issue in the passage. Paul is writing about the shocking sin that is happening within the church. That within the Corinthian church, there's a man sleeping with his father's wife. This is his own stepmother. And there's even a possibility that this man's father is still alive. Now, this level of sexual uh, immorality isn't tolerated, uh, the passage says, even among the pagans, among the non Christians. But it is happening within the church. So there is sin in the church. Now, how should the Corinthians feel about it? Look at verse 2. What does he say? How, do, how should they feel about it? How do they feel about it? Verse 2, And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? The church is proud about this. Everyone in church knows that this man is sleeping with his stepmother, and they weren't just tolerating it. They were proud. Verse 6, you see, they were boasting about it. And if you look a little bit to, with me to verse 9, Paul wrote a previous letter to tell them not to associate with the sexually immoral. Yet, here they, here they are, they are proud with one, with one case of serious sexual immorality in their midst. Or perhaps they thought they were so spiritual that there are sexual sin in, in their bodies, so that doesn't affect them. They can still meet and encourage each other, pray and read God's word, and carry out this sin on the side. Or perhaps they thought that they were, they were so holy, so special, because they were tolerant. Because they were tolerant of other Christians who kept sinning. So much so that tolerance becomes more important than holiness. For you and I today, we can Sometimes we can be tolerant of a member, church member's sin. And we can be tolerant even to the point of ignoring, ignoring that person's persistent unrepentance so that the person can keep serving in children's ministry or youth as a Bible study leader or to do their other things at church. We can be like that too. So for the Corinthians, Paul rebukes the church in verse 2. Rather than being proud of their sin, they should have mourned. 
A few years ago, at my grandmother's funeral, uh, we said goodbye. Uh, at my father's, my uh, grandmother's cremation, we said goodbye to her as her coffin was uh, taken away for cremation. And the staff, uh, they tried to quickly usher us out of the room, uh, so that uh, so that the next the next group can come in for that for their for the cremation. But we weren't ready yet. We were in grief. We were still sad. There were still lots of tears. We were still in mourning. And that's how the Corinthians should mourn about sin. Mourn as if a relative passed away. Mourn because this sin has crept into God's holy people. Mourn that there is this ugly stain on Christ's holy church, a church that Christ died to save. They need to mourn as a church for this sin. And as they mourn, in verse 2, they were to exercise discipline by removing this person. And we, and we see more about this in verse 3 to 5. So what this removing looks like, we look at, we see that in verse 3 to 5. So first, Paul shows that he has authority, uh, that the church has authority to remove the man, and they have authority to hand the person over to Satan. And the authority comes uh, from two, uh, two ways. So first, because Paul is united with them. Verse 3. For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So Paul started the church. Uh, last week we saw that Paul says that he's their spiritual father, chapter 4, verse 15. And a few weeks back, chapter 2, Paul says that he has God's spirit to understand God's will. In verse 3 here, he says that he's with them in spirit. That means he's on their side for their good, for their faithfulness to God. He's on their side to keep them growing. And, and being on their side for their good, Paul's judgment is for them to, for them to remove the man. Removing the man will help them be faithful to God. And that's not all. You see, when they are gathered to remove this man, verse 4 tells us that the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Verse 4. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. You'll notice here, it says that whole church is assembled, and there, the power of the Lord Jesus is present. The decision to remove this man isn't based on, isn't decided by one leader or the, or the pastors and elders together. Neither is it decided by the church member who shouts the loudest. And neither is it decided by an online smear campaign. No, the church gathered, assembled, must point out this man's sin, that this sexual sin is wrong in the eyes of Jesus, and he has been unrepentant of this serious sin. Then, with Christ's power and authority in this gathering, the church removes this man. And when the church removes this man, it hands, the church hands him over to Satan in verse 5. Let me read verse 5 for us. Verse 5. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, destruction of the flesh, this doesn't mean that Satan will be able to hurt or kill them. But what this means is, you remove the person from Christ's people. So now you experience a life in the world, life under Satan's authority. And there you experience how unsatisfying, how empty that life is. And as he spends time in that world, 
in some sense, ironically, Satan is destroying his confidence in this sinful world. And the hope is that experiencing this unsatisfying and empty life will cause the, world, will cause the, the sinner to turn back to God. Now, how does this work? I read about a woman who wrote about her experience in being removed from church and being handed over to Satan for the destruction of her flesh. Now, at first, she was offended uh, by, the, by the church's lack of love. She used to uh, call the church, in her mind, the holier-than-thou reformed Baptist church. But she spent more time in the world, outside the church. She saw the world as it really was. She realized that outside God, there's no good reason for morals. And she missed the certain truth of God's word. She also saw worldly people do horrible things. And she thought she would never do those things. Yet she did the things she said she would never do. So she felt great shame. And she missed the peace of God's forgiveness. Her confidence in the world is destroyed. Her flesh is destroyed. And five years later, she repented of her sin. She came back to God. Now what does this uh, passage mean for us? We do not remove anyone, everyone on the smallest sin. Otherwise, we will all be removed. There's no, there'll be no one here. But this passage teaches us that it is God's will to remove those who are persistently unrepentant, but despite rounds of correction. So that we show them God's word uh, to show them their sin, they insist that they are right. They are sinless. And sometimes, as we read in Matthew 18, many rounds of discipline might happen before removing the person. Or sometimes, like in our passage today, the sin is so serious that the pagans, even the pagans, shun it. So there are times that discipline means that we must take, we must fast forward the process and take this final step earlier to remove the persistent sinner. But verse two tells us that we must, we need to mourn as we do this. This is the right thing to do. This is right because, in verse six to eight. Christ has made you holy. So instead of mourning for sin, the Corinthians, they were boasting of sin. Verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Stop boasting. And Paul uses a baking language to explain what's going on. So in verse 6, it talks about leaven or yeast. So yeast is something that you put inside the dough to make the dough rise. So this makes uh, gaps in the uh, air, air gaps, air pockets in the bread, and the bread is softer and nicer to eat. Now, the bakers uh, in the first service, they corrected me on this. So I, just, I, thought, I thought that you need like two spoons of, like, of yeast, of this kind of spoons, to make the bread, uh, to make bread. Yeah, sorry, two, spo- two spoons of yeast to mix in a, like a 500 gram batch, it's a 500 gram, something like that, batch of dough to make bread. But no, they say it's actually a pinch of yeast mixed in a 500 grams of flour to make bread. So what Paul means is a little yeast affects the whole batch. In the same way, a little sin affects the whole church. So stop boasting about sin. See that little sin can affect the whole church. In the case of, in 1 Corinthians, this case of immorality has caused the whole church to become proud. 
And what's stopping the church from going to the next step to, as a church, give itself to immorality? That's verse 6. A little affects the whole. In verse 7 to 8, Paul then fills up this imagery with a festival from the Old Testament. From the book of Exodus, God saved the people of Israel from being slaves in Egypt. So he did that by sending plagues after plagues uh, over Egypt. And the last of these plagues was the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. And God's people, they were in Egypt, but they were safe because on the 14th day of the first month, they were to kill a lamb and put his blood on his doorpost, on their doorpost. So when the angel of death came, uh, it would pass over their house to go to the next house. And if there's no blood on that door, the angel of death will go in and take the life of the firstborn. So this passing over is where they got the name of this festival, the Passover. So the Egyptians, they didn't have the blood of the lamb on their doorposts, so the angel of death would go in and kill their firstborns. So the Egyptians, they were, they were, they were really scared. So they rushed uh, Israel out of their land so that God wouldn't kill the whole city. So God rescued Israel through the Passover. Now on the same day, on the 14th day of the first month, they were also to remove yeast uh, from, from their house and keep yeast out for seven days. And the bread they eat, they sort of make this special bread called unleavened bread. So they eat unleavened bread for seven days. This will remind them that uh, as they were, because the Egyptians wanted to want them out of the land, so there's no time for them to let the yeast well, uh, cause the bread to rise, cause the dough to rise. There'll be no time for that. They need to leave immediately. God commanded the Israelites to keep the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread every year to remember and celebrate how God rescued them. So Paul applies this Old Testament background uh, to the Corinthians. Verse 7, get rid, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the, the festival not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What Paul means here is this. The old yeast refers to sin. And the unleavened batch, that refers to God's people. Verse 7 says that they should remove all traces of sin because they are God's people. They should remove all traces of sin to be holy because they are already holy, as they really are, verse 7. Now, how does God make people like the Corinthians and like you and I his own? He does that through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. So Jesus is like our uh, Passover lamb. So through Jesus' death on the cross, through his blood shed for us, you and I can be saved from God's wrath. We don't have to face spiritual death. We, we don't have to face eternity without God as long as we trust in Jesus. And now that Christ has saved us, verse 8 says, keep the festival. We rejoice, we live for Christ now and forever. We keep the festival. This festival reminds us that Christ saved us. We don't save ourselves. We belong to Christ. So how do we enjoy this new life that Christ has won for us? In verse 8, we remove the old bread with the yeast of malice and wickedness. What this means is we remove all sin from us. 
That's for us, and so for the Corinthians. And they, uh, we all, must not boast in our sin. And we must enjoy our new relationship with, with the uneven bread of sincerity and truth. This means we live the holy life with Christ, that Christ has won for us. And for those of us who have followed Jesus, who rely on Jesus, who trust in Jesus, Christ is your Passover lamb. He died to take your sins, to save you. And this is a blank check for you to keep on sinning, to keep on rebelling against Christ. No, this Christ saved you to be holy, to live a new life, to follow Jesus. Now friends, when we struggle against sin, sometimes we like to think it's okay to give in to this sin because this sin is who I am. I must not deny who I am. I must be true to myself and no one has a right to tell me otherwise. Brothers and sisters, that's a lie from the devil. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for you. Christ has made you the new uneven batch. Christ has made you God's holy people. You are holy. Sin is not who you are. You are holy. So as holy people, get rid of sin. Be the holy people that you are. The other passages in the Bible tell us to fight sin with the strength that God gives us. Pray for help. Seek brothers and sisters to keep you accountable Memorize the parts of the Bible that will strike at the devil each time he tries to tempt you. Remind yourself that you are the new uneven batch, that Christ died for you, and deny the devil the victory he wants to get over you. Because Christ has made you holy. But let's recap what we've seen so far. The Corinthians are boasting about sin, and Paul rebukes them. Mourn the sin and discipline the sinner because Christ has made you holy. Therefore, judge the immoral uh, person within the church. Now, Paul is worried about sin spreading in the church, just like yeast spreading through the whole dough. So what does it look like for the Corinthians to remove yeast of sin? Well, it it requires them to separate. But Paul, Paul clarifies that that he doesn't mean to separate from the world. In verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not in all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. The people of this world, they are the people who don't believe in Jesus. They are against God. And Paul tells the Corinthians, don't remove yourself from those people. Otherwise, you have to live on the moon. No. Instead, separate yourself from the so-called Christian. Verse 11. Now I'm writing to you uh, that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. There are some people, they, they they claim their identity Christian, but their sins show that they are not. They don't really follow Jesus. And it's not just that you can describe them as people who commit sexual sin or people who slander. You see, 
the way that Paul talks about them is that these sins describe who they are. They don't just sin once and repent. No, they keep sinning over and over again, even though people correct them. So in this case, they don't just commit sexual sins. They are the sexually immoral person. And don't, they don't just cover what other people have. They are the greedy person. This is who they are. They are the idol worshipper, the slanderer, the drunk, the swindler. This is who they are in their persistent unrepentance. They live more as an unrepentant, unrepentant sinner than the Christian that Jesus saved. And these so-called Christians, they are smuggling the yeast of malice and wickedness into Christ's holy church, desecrating the whole batch, stumbling others to think that it's okay to sin. In verse 11, the Corinthian Christians must remove sin by separating themselves from the so-called Christian. They must not even invite these Christians, these so-called Christians, for meals. Now, separating from the unrepentant Christian is serious. And for us, it means we don't treat them as part of the unleavened batch. It means we, treat, we don't treat them as part of God's holy people. We don't invite them for our gatherings our socials. In some cases, we should even stop warning them for a while. Why? Because they have persistently rejected warning after warning over a long period of time. So why do we need to warn them? Yeah, but this will depend on the case. It might be that after a certain period of time, we read the Bible with them to show them, to see where they are. But what we see in our passage is Christ has made the church holy by his sacrifice. And he keeps the church holy through discipline, according to his word. And this means removing the sinner who refuses to repent. And, and separating the, sin, the sinner from the church declares to, something to the sinner and the church. So for the sinner, if they want to live as a non-Christian, then we can't call them Christians. This would, this would, we then will be part of this ploy, this charade to fool them into thinking that they are genuine Christians, only for them to realize that it's too late on Judgment Day when Jesus comes back again. So they need to know now, they need to, be, they need to have certainty now where they stand before Jesus. And if they are not living as a Christian, the loving thing to do is to remove them. From the, from, from the church. And for the rest of the church, discipline shows us that sin is serious. And we should repent for sin in our lives. We should fight sin in our lives so that sin, our sin, our personal sin, won't infect the whole church. So the church must separate from the so-called Christians. And in verse 12 to, 12 to 13, Paul concludes, with two questions and two answers. Two questions. First question. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? Two answers. Verse 13. God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. So here's the point. God judges those outside the church. It's not the church's business. It's to judge and to penalize the world, to separate ourselves from the world. No. But it is the church's role to judge inside the church. And where they are the wicked, 
we are to expel them. Now, this, this quote comes from Deuteronomy uh, in the Old Testament. It comes from quite a few places. And in all cases, uh, it's serious sin. But in most cases, uh, God tells the people to put to death the sinners. I think there are six or seven cases where God says this, but only one of them where the person doesn't die. And that's to remove sin from among God's people. Now, in, when we come to 1 Corinthians, Paul doesn't want the Corinthians to execute anyone. But the physical death in Deuteronomy is a picture of spiritual death of those people who continue to sin unrepentantly. But removing the sinner warns the sinner that he, by his behavior, he's showing that he's spiritually dead. That he hasn't received life from Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And if he continues, he will face God's judgment. So when the church exercises discipline on this persistent, unrepentant sinner, well, we are, we, are, we are telling the sinner about his spiritual state and God's coming judgment. But if we fail to do that, or if the church fails to do that, then the church is enabling the sinner to keep on sinning with no consequence. And just as the little yeast that leaves the whole batch, the sinner's sin that, we, that church allows infects the church, and the church continues to allow the sinner's sin, and the sinner's sin infects the church. And this cycle continues to harm everyone until sin is removed. So for those of us uh, who, who, who might face correction in some way, I'm not saying that we will remove you, but maybe there's sometimes as a brother or sister may come to you and say, brother or sister, I think you have sinned in this way. For those of us who will face correction in some way, we will feel uncomfortable at the way that we are confronted. We may grumble, we may complain, we may get defensive and accuse the church of being unloving. But what we see on our passage today is that this is Christ's way to show you your sin so that you may repent and live, to challenge you to be the, to be the holy person that Christ has saved you to be. And this is Christ's way of removing sin from his church. So if you persist in unrepentant and serious sin, then the church cannot be, cannot be sure that you are a genuine Christian. And because we cannot be sure, we must act accordingly to what God tells us in this passage and in the rest of the Bible. So when you are corrected, please think about it. Please listen. If there are areas to repent, please turn back. Because sin has serious consequences for you and for the rest of us. Mourn the sin and discipline the sinner because Christ has made you holy. Therefore, judge the immoral within the church. Now, sin mustn't be tolerated among the church. And the way that we deal with it um, is that we deal with it with mourning and tears. This pastor in, in America says, there are churches that are good at exercising discipline, but not at being filled with grief. You must... You show some deacons a little, uh, some little hint of moral failure and they'll shoot the whole thing to pieces and call it faithfulness. But where are the tears? We can be fast to call out sin in other people, but we are very slow to lament and grieve that this sin has found its way inside Christ's holy church. 
and pride can creep in, creep in as we call out other people's sin. And we can think, oh, at least I'm not like that person. What a sinner. Pride puffs us up. But humility mourns for sin as an assault on Christ's holy church. There, harm, there is harm when sin enters the church. Friends, when there is sin in church, we mustn't tolerate it. We must grieve as we correct. We lament as we rebuke. We mourn as we discipline. Earlier I talked about Jack. So what happened to Jack? His church didn't tolerate his sin. Jack confessed his sin to the church, and the church prayed for him and kept him accountable. And the church set him on a plan and committed him to this plan to kill this sin. It was painful, but Jack and his church went through it. Six years later, Jack spoke to his pastor. And this is what he said. Thank you for, well, all of that six years ago. If I'm honest, there were times when I hated you. But now, I'm so thankful. Really, thank you. Mourn the sin and discipline the sinner because Christ has made you holy. Therefore, judge the immoral within you. Let's pray. Grant, Almighty God, that as you continue to call us to yourself, that though you see us to be alienated from you, you yet extend your hand to us and often exhort us and stimulate us by your discipline that we may not run headlong to our own ruin. O grant that we may, not, we may not be deaf to your holy and gracious discipline nor be hardened against your word, but that we may become instantly submissive and also return to the right way and constantly proceed in it and follow our vocation through our whole life as long as you continue it to us until at, at length, until we at length reach the mark which is set before us, even until we be gathered into your celestial kingdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for the sermon. We'll now take some time to reflect and discuss what you have heard. The questions are on the screen. Um, first, is Christ my Passover lamb? If he is, how should my life be? And second, why is Paul so serious about sin in church?